Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, before we get started, you should know, this episode mentions sexual assault and physical abuse. Please take care. When you think about political power and the link between people in power and slavery, you do start looking for parallels around you in the world today. You start thinking, okay, we have these fights over access to the ballot. Well, who had the right to vote and how has that changed over time? And how did the way it all began influence the way it's going now? You can look at a lot of issues through this prism of we started as a country where the people who held power were so often the same people who held slaves. And what does that mean for us now? In the summer of 2020, reporter Julie Weil came across this huge gap in our knowledge of American history. This project first started when D.C. did something that a lot of cities did around the summer of 2020 and created a list of all the public buildings and parks and schools that could be renamed because of various wrongdoing on the part of the people they were named for. My job at the Washington Post is covering D.C.'s local government. So I looked at D.C.'s list and I tried to figure out who these people were and why they were on the list. I realized that several of them were in Congress and several of the people on the list separately were slave owners and that was why they were listed. So I thought, well, maybe these members of Congress were slaveholders. And I Googled members of Congress who were slave owners. And it wasn't there. And I clicked to the second page of Google results and it still wasn't there. And I realized there was no list. And pretty much right away after that, I realized I needed to make the list. So she did. And when it published last week, the database she built for the Post became the first ever list of every member of Congress known to have been an enslaver. There were more than 1,700. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 17th. Today, what Julie's reporting tells us about America's past, present, and future. I can imagine a lot of different uses for it, and I'm very excited to see now that it's out in the world how people do put it to use. Now, if you're a historian, you have this extra layer of analysis you can do where you can say, well, let's use this database and see if the slaveholders voted differently from those who were not slaveholders. I think it will be useful for all of those cities like Washington all across the country that are having debates about whose names should be on buildings. They can look up You know, the person whose name is on your elementary school, you can look him up in this database. I'm also hearing from a lot of people who are researching their own family histories who've already started getting in touch with me. There are people who are descendants of some of these congressmen who are looking to see whether they 
had slaveholders in their ancestry, there are also people who are descendants of people who were enslaved by the congressmen. And oftentimes it's really hard for Black families to research their family genealogy because there's just so little information recorded. When I was going through these censuses to create this database, there's lots of information about the congressmen. It says often their age or their birthplace or their profession. There's very little information about the people they enslaved. Oftentimes they're just listed by age and gender, not even a name. So that information can be really hard to come by and to the extent that it's helpful for Black families who are researching their family's past, that's really exciting to me. Julie spoke with producer Renny Svernofsky about her work. So tell me a little more about the process. Like how did the initial kind of list that you saw become this project? What sort of digging did it take to compile all this information and to present it the way that the Post now has? Well, once I set out to create this list, I started with a set of names from the Congressional Bio Guide. It was a list of every single member of Congress who was born before 1840. There turned out to be more than 5,500 of those congressmen, more than I would have expected, had served in those early years of Congress. 5,500-something people. That was my list to start with. Everybody who became an adult before the Civil War. And I put that into an Excel spreadsheet, sorted in order by their birthday, starting with the earliest and going to the latest. And I read about each one of those people. I would look the man up. I would see where he lived. Really, geography was the most important part to figuring out these mysteries. Mm -hmm. If I could figure out, okay, in 1790, this man was living in this town, in this county, in this state, then I could go to the census and try to find him living in 1790 in that county and see if there were enslaved people in his household or not. There were a lot of other resources I used. It wasn't just the census, but the census is the source for the vast majority of my conclusions. What challenges did you run into while putting this list together? And I guess, did they inform at all why this kind of database hasn't been compiled before? I don't know why it hasn't been compiled before. My guess would be a combination of the fact that it does just take a really long time. Right. And also the fact that we were not always in the mode of telling these stories because it's not just the big picture 1,700 congressmen that hasn't been told before. It's also oftentimes the individual picture. For example, um, John Floyd from Virginia. He was governor of Virginia. He, I believe, ran for president at some point in the 1830s. When you read about John Floyd in a history book, it usually tells you John Floyd had a complicated relationship with slavery and actually uh, was opposed to slavery. When he was governor of Virginia, he even thought about banning slavery in the state far before the Civil War. It doesn't say, and if you look him up in the census, he was a slave owner. That part of the story was just left out of so many people's stories. And some of them certainly surprised me when I found them in the census. And and so that's part of what I'm trying to provide is the part of the story that's been left out. Is your list incomplete? Like, are there any holes that you're trying to fill? There are still quite a few people I'm still researching. I, from that original set of 5,500 congressmen, I was able to conclude 1,715 of them were slave owners. More than 3,100 were not slave owners. And that leaves 
677 as of the day we published, who I was still not sure about. And we published that list of 677 names. And I'm thrilled to say that that list is getting shorter because Washington Post readers are sending me the answers. I Just this morning, I've been reading the submissions from our readers who are just incredible. I've gotten emails from people as far away as France and Shanghai who are sending me records. And some of what they've sent is fascinating. I was reading a professor in New York sent me some handwritten documents written by some of these congressmen stating things like, I am setting free my slave Lucy or the enslaved person living on my plantation gave birth to a child today and I want to register a birth certificate in the congressman's own hand. You get chills looking at these documents. So I've been able over the past day or so to start chipping away at those unknowns. And I really hope people will keep sending me that information so that I can complete the work. After the break, we learn about how these enslavers help to shape the issues that still impact America today. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So there's a lot that you can glean from this data that you compiled. You mentioned it before, but I wonder, what did you learn about how slaveholding influenced early America and early American policy? That's such a rich question, and there's so much to explore there. Mm -hmm. A couple of the votes that my colleague Adrian and I have looked at already include the Missouri Compromise, which was an 1820 agreement that... It stopped the expansion of slavery in part of the country. And we think of this as a compromise to hold together the North and the South that were increasingly having trouble living in the same country with the same values. But it's a compromise that was not equally reached. That was what Adriana and I found when we looked at the votes, was that slaveholders and non-slaveholders voted pretty differently on that one. We also looked at what happened in Congress during the Civil War, when Mm. the congressmen from the southern states that seceded, almost all of them had left Congress, of course, because their states were not in the United States anymore. Even still, during the Civil War, the U.S. is fighting a war over slavery, and still 20% of the members of the U.S. Congress are current or former slaveholders. And when you look at those current and former slaveholders, how do they vote on the 13th Amendment to end slavery? Only three of them voted for it in the Senate, whereas 35 out of 40 non-slaveholding senators voted for it. Where did enslavers over time fall on the political spectrum? Did you find anything interesting there? 
all over the place. There are more than 60 political parties that these members belong to. They were unionists and federalists and prohibitionists and progressives and all sorts of parties. Uh, That being said, the two political parties that are the most common affiliation in this database are actually the two parties, at least in name, that we know today. The most common affiliation was with the Democratic Party. There are more than 600 Democrats in this database. And the second most common, interestingly, was with the Republican Party, even though the Republican Party was really founded as more of a party opposed to slavery. Many, many Republicans were current or former slaveholders. Are there any other numbers or findings that really baffled you? I mean, in your article, you write that for the first 18 years of American lawmaking, more than half the men elected to Congress each session were slaveholders. Post-Reconstruction, people who had been slave owners continued to serve in Congress well into the 20th century. The first woman to ever serve in Senate was a former slaveholder, things like that. One of the names on the list that surprised me, which I think will not come as a surprise to everybody, perhaps, but was Henry Clay. When I was growing up taking U.S. history, Henry Clay was a real hero. He was the man who held the Union together In 1820 and again in 1850, he came up with these big legislative compromises to keep the United States from splitting over slavery. And and he is. He's one of America's greatest statesmen ever. There are counties named for him in 16 states. And yet I did not know at any point that I was learning about Henry Clay's achievements that while he was trying to prevent the country from going to war over slavery— he was a slaveholder at home. It makes a lot of sense when you think about it and other people knew it, but I never did. And that one caught me by surprise. And I imagine as people look through the database, the historical figures they know a lot about, they'll see their names and they'll be surprised by different ones. Were there any other stories that sort of stuck with you through until now? Well, I'll tell you one of the stories that has really haunted me since I read it. Uh, James Worthington was a congressman from the Baltimore area who was a slaveholder and he had an enslaved daughter like quite a few of these congressmen. He had raped an enslaved woman and had a child with her and he sold his daughter to a man who wanted her to bear enslaved children. She refused and the man beat her to death. And there's a quote from a man named James Watkins, a fellow enslaved man who escaped and wrote about her death. And this quote has haunted me since the day I read it. He talked about all the American laws to keep back the soul. I I think that just sums this up. This was a brutal institution, but it wasn't a lawless institution. It was carried out in broad daylight in court cases, in tax records, in wills, in all the institutions of our legal system, slavery's there and the records are there. These American laws to keep back the soul. I want to talk a bit about what the response has been like to your reporting. Have people started reaching out? You mentioned that people have started filling out and and rounding out the holes that you're trying to fill, but what about other responses? Absolutely. It's been really exciting to hear from history teachers. I've heard from teachers who say they're going to 
include this in their class units on slavery and reconstruction. I heard from a teacher as far as Germany who says she's going to teach her class about this and also from some history professors who find it valuable for their research. And how do you, I, I was seeing this, of course, on Twitter, how do you read the sort of dismissive characterization of this work in some circles online as just, you know, critical race theory? I'm going to be totally honest and say that I have been stunned by how warmly people have received this. It has been, for the most part, a a really amazing outpouring of people saying, wow, this is valuable and I'm glad that the Washington Post did this. The main criticism I've heard has been an interesting one. It's been from people who've said, why did you spend so much time on something obvious? We all knew how connected political power was to racism in early America. I I think that that criticism has been the one I've heard the most, which, which is surprising to me. Julie Weil is a local government reporter for The Post. We'll put a link in our show notes to the database she put together with graphics reporter Adrian Blanco and designer Leo Dominguez. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This story was produced and mixed by Renny Svernovsky and edited by Ariel Plotnik and Maggie Penman. I'm Alexis Diao. Martine Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>